Welcome to Navigate, the podcast that helps you safely and securely traverse the globe. Alongside travel industry experts and global travelers, we'll gather insights and advice that help you manage any pitfalls or problems that may occur while you're away from home. Our voyage of discovery starts now. So welcome everybody to today's Navigate podcast. Today we have joining us Jace Wilson. Jace is a PhD candidate at Leeds Beckett University who has recently and not so recently uh, traveled the world during the course of his research to some higher risk environments, shall we say. And he's going to tell us a little bit about international activity um, in a research capacity based at a UK university and, and how that plays out. So welcome, Jace. Thank you very much. Jace, maybe first of all, you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and, and your role at, at Leeds Beckett um, and, then, and then a little bit about your research as well. Yeah, right. So um, I'm a graduate student from Canada and I've been living in the UK for the last two and a half years. I came over specifically to work on this project that I had uh, written a proposal for. Uh, the title of the project is called Tourism in the Death Zone. So uh, I imagine that probably quite a few people aren't exactly very familiar with that terminology. Basically, the death zone just refers to altitudes above 8,000 meters. So there's 14 peaks in the world that are uh, above those altitudes, and they're found exclusively in Pakistan, China, Nepal, and India. So as you can imagine, with something like tourism in the death zone, which involves uh, mountaineering on high-altitude peaks like Everest, like K2, like Kanchanchunga, and so forth, you know, that obviously means for me as a researcher that I'm going to be going into uh, base camps at or above 5,000 meters in pretty remote areas to do interviews with uh, people of all sorts of backgrounds. So when universities that we're talking to, when they say, when they refer to um, uh, the academics that wander off into the high risk parts of, uh, of the world or sit on the edge of volcanoes or climb mountains or, you know, climb trees in the middle of the Amazon, that's you. They're talking about you. <laughs> yeah, I mean, yes. Yeah, I guess so. And um, it's really interesting, actually, because you, you touched on a great point there, which is, you know, your final uh, destination for the for your research purposes might be Everest Base Camp, and, and you might be there for a, you know for a, as long a time as as you can manage. But actually, from a travel risk management point of view, um, possibly just as complicated and just as uh, risk ridden, maybe is the journey to that environment, as you say, through Pakistan, through uh, Nepal, through remote areas, um, and then the more typical part of travel risk management as companies and corporate entities have to think about it come into play the healthcare is not so good or you know maybe they don't drive so carefully this kind of thing so would you say that's fair that when the university considers your kind of trip do they go straight to the sort of glamorous high risk bit and worry about the Everest part or do you think they actually start looking at the journey in general well, uh, it's tough for me to say, of course, what each university does. I can only speak to the specific experience that I've had. Um, and I think that because Leeds Beckett, the university that I'm at, has a tendency to do – actually, they, they have a program called Battleback where they actually take uh, wounded veteran soldiers to Nepal pretty regularly so uh, to, to go trekking in the Khumbu Valley of Nepal. So they go about every year and a half or two years 
and uh, the person who is sort of responsible for those expeditions was brought on very early to sort of take a look at what I wanted to do. So I think that individual specifically and the familiarity of the university with with these types of trips meant that I, I think the process was relatively thorough. Um, you know, and for for example, like I was going through his uh, the uh, the other guy his uh, his um, risk management sheets, and he's got all kinds of stuff like no riding motorbikes or no drinking alcohol and riding motorbikes or anything like that. So, you know, it, it was pretty thorough in some senses, but at the same time, I, I think there's a lot of unknowns and there's a lot of uh, difficulty predicting, especially to give it a little bit of context. I was in the field for 150 days. So that's 150 days away from the university, 150 days, you know, in, um, you know, taking international flights and buses and trains and, you know, possibly even, you know, with COVID right now, I think it's awfully revealing how easy it is to pass germs and get sick or to contract some type of virus um, whilst out in the field. So that's 150 days of like quite a bit of uh, exposure to potential risks, which might be out there. Brings us back to a question that I probably should have asked first, which is just tell us a bit about your Everest journey in terms of uh, where you flew through, where you traveled through, where you perhaps spent time on the way to get to Everest. Just give us an idea of your overall trip. Yeah, right. So um, my trip was, again, it was 150 days. I began, I flew into Kathmandu, and I spent about two weeks in Kathmandu. Um, went around and did some interviews with, uh, this was prior to the mountaineering season, and I did some interviews with high-altitude workers and whatnot primarily. And then at that point, what ends up happening is you take what is probably the world's most exciting and dangerous flight from Kathmandu to Lukla. Uh, these these flights are, unfortunately, they are actually, uh, they do actually have quite a high likelihood of, of crashes. Whilst I was there, uh, one of the planes had actually made contact with a helicopter and everyone in the plane and the helicopter you know, died, so it, it, it happens, and it happens actually quite frequently. Um, and of course, you know, while in Kathmandu, there's all kinds of things like taxis and trains and whatnot, so there's lots of moving parts and lots of sort of risk flying around you at all times. Then uh, you end up sort of trekking. It's a, I mean, the Kubu Valley of Nepal is quite populated with tourists, so there's lots of people around. So, um, you know, if you were to wind up in a situation, uh, you know, there'd be lots of people to around to help. But for the most part, you know, it is a mountainous area in a pretty remote uh, part of the world where if something were to happen, um, okay, the Kumbu Valley is one thing because there's lots of helicopters, because there's lots of tourists, and they can transport you out of there um, if something were to happen. But, you know, after my period of time at Everest, uh, the what was arguably the sort of much more uh, sort of dangerous part of the fieldwork was my fieldwork in Pakistan. And that's not because of the typical way we think of Pakistan with sort of social, political sort of conflict and different things. I mean, that obviously poses a risk, but the biggest part about Pakistan is the remoteness. So for we trekked into K2 Base Camp, which is about a 
at least a week's walk from anywhere. And when you do, you, you walk a week and the village that you would get to wouldn't have any hospital facilities. And on top of that, because there's fewer tourists, you know, uh, the rescue services are only provided by a couple of like really aging military helicopters back there. So uh, it, it's in that part of the trip and how far we were from anywhere, it makes it actually quite risky because, um, you know, even simple things like if you were to get a cough or if you were to get a flu or if, or whatever, um, you know, you, you really don't have access to medicine. Um, if you were to break your ankle or something like that, you're really in the middle of nowhere. So luckily that portion of the field work went off sort of without a hitch. Um, but, you know, I think that's probably one of the periods of time where I was exposed to the, well, I, I'll say it's that the small things at that, with the, you know, when you're out in the middle of nowhere, the small things can turn into really big things really quickly. Mm. And that's an interesting point because it's those small things or that small um, uh, health issue or a medical issue or a small injury or a small cut, those things that start small that can get bigger and bigger and bigger in, uh, that in that environment is a really bad thing. That's what we see quite a lot of because people call us, you know, to discuss those things along the way. And then you see that window of opportunity to make decisions and do things at a slower, less dramatic pace, help you make the decision that, you know, we're turning around here and, you know, this is a big enough deal to cancel your trip, to change things, to come away. And that comes with a lot of heartbreak when something has uh, had this much planning go into it. But it's better to have those points of discussion, those experts on the line so you can make those uh, those decisions at a slower pace and have the comfort that it is absolutely necessary to do so uh, rather than leave it another week and then, you know, uh, you're hoping for a helicopter at the right kind of time. The remote environments are very interesting, aren't they? Because in the one sense, there's a lot of planning and preparation you can do, as I just alluded to, to make sure that those remote environment incidents uh, can be dealt with as best as possible. But then there's an awful lot of stuff, actually. You know, uh, you have to take that mode of transport to get in or out. There is no healthcare when you're there. So to a certain extent, I suppose you and the university are looking at each other, um, accepting a certain amount of, of risk. Is that Would you say that's the right way to, to put it? When it comes to risk, of course, there's those sort of those things that you know about that can happen, uh, that you can sort of mitigate and plan for as best as possible. But then there's uh, other stuff that comes up that you can't even, you know, that you can like sort of the black swan events or, or whatnot that you, you know, or that are unknowable by nature. Uh, one of which was while we were trekking to K2 base camp. And now this didn't actually wind up being an issue uh, because I wasn't sort of caught, but I wasn't even thinking about it. There's when you're trekking into K2 base camp, you cross quite a few um, military checkpoints, and um, I was I took some photos of uh, of one of them on my phone, and uh, it was very quickly pointed out to me by my trekking porter, or by my trekking guide that you know you really really shouldn't do that, and you should delete those photos immediately. If you got caught doing that, you would be detained, and there'd be all this sort of all these issues going on and you know it was something so innocent that I hadn't really even thought of for a second about what kind of risk that could put me under what you would assume would have very quickly come up in part of your you know administrative risk assessments paperwork research done you know sitting back at Leeds Beckett with a coffee in your hand 
actually was one of the things that completely blindsided you and and, uh, and took you by surprise. And I suppose similar incidences in um, uh, either less friendly countries or countries who perhaps because of geopolitical reasons are being very sensitive to research being conducted all of a sudden you know there's your headline in the sense that uh, you know jace william gets detained in nepal for researching without permission that that's how those things happen i guess what about life at everest base camp how did that pan out did your research go the way you wanted it to go did you see people who uh, were better prepared than you not as well prepared uh, as you were there any incidents whilst you were at everest base camp with people falling ill or, or fatalities or how, how did it all pan out spending you know, uh, a minimum of six weeks at around 5,000 meters is very exhausting. And I lost a lot of weight, and you can see how it would be very easy to get quite sick. Uh, you know, it's not always the easiest thing to do to just do something simple like eat food because you might feel sick or whatever. There were uh, nine, nine foreign climbers in my camp who were either going to climb Everest or Lhotse which is the fourth, Everest, of course, the highest, and Lhotse is the fourth highest mountain in the world, and they're kind of more or less side by side. Of those nine climbers, only four of them summited. One of them ended up ha uh, developing um, symptoms of uh, uh, high-altitude sort of pulmonary edema. Uh, another one of the climbers fell into a crevasse. We had one of our team members actually die. So there was a lot of things. There was a lot of things around and a lot of people that I had met that had symptoms that had to call the trip off uh, and a lot of stories through that I had collected through my interviews of pretty extreme things. An environment where you have to have done your preparation for sure and an environment where you need to have your plans in place for, for when things go wrong if, uh, you know, if those plans can exist. Uh, Jace, I want to ask you some questions about uh, about the, the university. Um, which departments at the university were most engaged with the sort of planning and preparation for your for your trip? Was it the health and safety department? Was it the insurance and risk department? Was it some kind of international office? Or, you know, who, who did you deal with most? Who seemed to own the process at, at Leeds Beckett when it came to sort of planning for your trip? Well, so the way that it works for us is that basically you have – we have sort of an internal uh, ethics sort of protocol, which involves me obviously filling out a lot of paperwork about, okay, here's what I'm proposing that I will do, 150 days of field work, and that will involve um, these type of risks to me, the researcher. So the ethics procedure usually is mostly uh, to prevent any uh, issues that might arise with uh, with participants whom you're whom you're dealing with. However, in this case, and in my case, it was mostly around protecting myself, the researcher. But actually, way, way in advance of this, I had went quite early um, because my PhD supervisor had basically said, well, you need to talk to this Martin Watson, who's the sort of uh, risk and ethics sort of officer at, at the university who's the one who basically is, is responsible for ensuring uh, the trip and, and uh, making sure that I've crossed my T's and dot my I's for, for the whole thing. So right there, we've kind of got sort of four or five different levels or la layers or faculties or organizations within the university that are sort of coming together to take a look at this trip. 
and to provide expertise and, and so forth. Were you required to sort of keep in touch with the university on a daily basis, uh, you know, two or three daily basis? Was there a, a schedule and a routine as to how they required you to keep in touch throughout your trip? Or was it, was it more ad hoc than that? Dave Bunting, who's the uh, coordinator for these outdoor trips that they do to Nepal every two years, his thought process was, well, we need to have daily communications with you. But you try to keep daily communications is, is really dangerous because ultimately there's so many opportunities for there to be a breakdown in the chain of communications. Um, so, you know, for example, one of the talks that we had very early on was, well, if, if we're supposed to communicate on a daily basis and we don't hear from Jace in 24 hours, well, what do we do? Or do we start to raise the flags or do we start to, you know, begin searching or what's going to happen? How do we, do we escalate immediately? And we had just kind of realized that trying to keep that level of contact was just probably going to, to cause problems. So we had agreed that on a more or less kind of ad hoc basis, um, I would be keeping in contact with the supervisors, at least on a sort of weekly, weekly basis. But this is in also paired up with a pretty detailed itinerary that I had developed. So the supervisors, so I was able to sort of send them a message and say, hey, here's where we are now. I'm trekking between Lukla and I'm trekking up to Tengboche for the next couple of days. I'm going to spend a couple of days in Namche Bazaar uh, acclimating to the altitude and hopefully doing some interviews. And, and there, there we go. There's like five days. However, in Pakistan, it was a completely different scenario where we were trying to keep regular communications up and we'd actually, the, the university had actually bought a spot communications device, which, you know, again, one of the things, you know, you could blame this maybe on a lack of research, I'm not sure, but the network provider that spot uses to communicate just didn't operate that well. I, there were people, I'd be sitting beside people who use Garmin devices who use a different network and they were able to communicate fine. Whereas me with my spot device, I was getting messages out, but I couldn't get messages back in. So I never had a confirmation that my messages were ever received, which obviously sort of made me feel pretty nervous. Luckily in the end, I was able to use other people's devices to, to confirm that, uh, that, that something had, be, had been sent and received. So, um, you know, we sort of were able to put the fires out there. And then even at some point, my communications device completely died. So uh, it froze with a full battery. You know, so it took like four days for the battery to finally die before the screen unfroze and then I could recharge it reboot the system but that was four days where i had no communications so jace i just wanted to ask you before before we let you go i just wanted to ask you your thoughts on um academic activity or research assignments that that you feel uh might get signed off at the moment even with all the covid restrictions that are uh, that are part of our world at the minute you know I, i'm sort of guessing that universities will say well if it doesn't need to happen right now um, you know, let's put this trip off. And I suppose your, your research may well have fallen into that category. But in the academic circles or, or at your university, are you hearing about trips that are continuing, trips that are carrying on at the moment with all the restrictions in, in place? It's just really tough to say right now. I think that the appetite for risk uh, at the moment 
as demonstrated by the by the closures and by the the um, the way that the COVID situation is being handled, you know, the appetite for risk seems to be extremely low. When you feel that uh, you can travel again, and when you feel the the next uh, trip request and risk assessment process might go through and, and get approved, uh, where is it that you'll be trying to get to next, Jace? Well. Uh, my next direction will hopefully be to uh, obtain some postdoctoral uh, research funding. And the types of things that I want to look at and I'm very interested in is how we are dealing, how, or what is, what is dealing with risk through adventure tourism mean for us? What does it give to us? Uh, what are the benefits of it? And how, because we have sort of this public erasure of, of risk from our from our lives as citizens, you know, it's something that's kind of banished to the corners of society. But meanwhile, when I'm out in the field and I'm interviewing, sort of high level, you know, high altitude tourism is really expensive, and most of the people that do it are high income earners, and they see a really strong value in doing, you know, sort of extreme athletic feats which involve a lot of risk. And when I talk to them about it, they they seem to think that there's a tremendous benefit from dealing with risk and from dealing with the real emotions and fear and all of the things that, and the doubt and the concerns and all of the things that you have to deal with on an expedition. They talk about when they come back from this, they talk about like a really extreme clarity that they can see, you know, if you're dealing with the emotions and the fear and everything of sort of you know, what, what can be described in some senses as sort of life and, life and death situations. You know, for example, one of my participants had said to me that, you know, if I'm up at Camp 3 and a storm is coming in and I have to go all the way back down to base camp, if I don't do it, if I don't pick my body up and walk down the mountain, you know, I'm going to get stuck up there in a storm and I might die. So a, a lot of them talk about how when they come back into sort of their real world, um, they they see things much more clearly. All the little problems or little minutiae that is, have bogged them down in their job or in their work or their life or their partners or whatever, all of a sudden it just seems to be really simple to, to deal with because they realize how trivial sort of the, a lot of these small things are. Jace, uh, in this conversation we've touched upon uh, an awful lot. <clears throat> we've touched upon fatalities in the field. We've touched upon remote areas. We've touched upon uh, reduced healthcare capability, state detention, security dangers in Pakistan. Uh, and, and you've told us a lot about how you and your university prepared for your trip and how it went. And I thank you very, very much for your time. And uh, I hope you'll come back and speak to us again in the future. Sounds good. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be uh, with you. Thanks, Jace. And thank you for listening to um, this episode of the Navigate podcast. Thank you for listening to this episode of Navigate, the world travel protection podcast that steers you in the right direction, helping you explore the world safely. For more information on how we protect millions of global travelers each year, visit worldtravelprotection.com or follow us on LinkedIn. We'd love to connect. Finally, if you've enjoyed this episode and you want to hear more from my experts, be sure to hit subscribe or follow or please leave us a review. Until next time, keep traveling and stay safe.